0: Amen, and you may be seated. want to continue to add what I hope has been a chorus of voices wishing you happy Easter, happy resurrection Sunday morning. There's a tradition in the church, some 2,000 years old, where when we gather together to commemorate, contemplate, and celebrate that Jesus is alive, the church will have this little bitty uh, participatory Liturgy, where a chief liturgist, much like myself, will say he is risen. The church will respond by saying, He is risen indeed. Let's play it like for realsies this time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Indeed, and that is why we are here. It is Resurrection Sunday. You might notice the observant amongst you who attend this church, this campus, with frequency, I'm wearing a suit. No, it's not a rental. But I don't typically wear a suit as most of you are aware. But as I tell people all the time at Easter, I always wear a suit to a funeral. Easter is the death of death. Easter is a funeral for death. Normally when we come together for a funeral, we are coming to honor and to pay respects to the deceased. Not this time. This time we come and we pay honor. We pay honor homage, we pay respect to the one who is responsible for the deceased because Jesus is alive. That's our big idea for this Easter Sunday morning. Jesus is alive, which means he has rendered death dead. And so we no longer need fear it whatsoever. Many, many lives have come from this single death. That's why we're here this morning. We are a product of the resurrection of Jesus. So this morning, I want us to prepare our hearts and minds to see a brand new creation was thousands of years in the making, and then it will go on for all eternity, some 1,000 years before the first coming of Jesus. The psalmist writes, 1,000 years earlier, he writes this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, Psalm 24, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who is there like that? Well, there's only one who can ascend the hill of the Lord. And he did. And he was killed in our place. That was our theme for Good Friday as we gathered together that Jesus died, the innocent in place of the guilty. We looked at Mark chapter 15 and we saw the story of Barabbas, the guilty one who without question had committed crimes against Rome, crimes against humanity. He was a murderer, a rebel, an insurrectionist. He was guilty, you might say, dead to rights. And as he stands on the elevated platform in front of the governor's elevated judgment seat, he looks over and he sees Jesus and he says, it should have been me. And when we come to Easter weekend, there should be some cord plucked in our hearts that says, It should have been me. I'm guilty, dead to rights, guilty as sin, we might say, but because of what Jesus has done. Easter is a funeral for death and Jesus is alive. Now, my hunch is that pretty much everybody here has heard at least some level understands what that means. Maybe just in some sort of abstract way that Jesus is alive. And so perhaps for some of you, You've come to recognize Easter and to pay your respects, to show him honor, because, you know, it's kind of what we're supposed to do at Easter. But please, please hear this right at the beginning. Please hear this as emphatically and delicately and yet pastorally and lovingly as I can say this. Easter and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not about you paying respects. Easter and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is about what Jesus is doing to you with you, through you, in a redemptive recreation because of the incredible but true reality that Jesus is alive. Now, we are in the gospel of Mark chapter 16. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 16. We've been saying all semester long that we want to look at Jesus as we study these gospel accounts, that the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. So yes, theology, doctrine, study of salvation, study of all these kinds of things, massively important. But looking at Jesus as the object of our faith is what makes our faith grow. We've said for all this spring semester that the rightful king has come and his kingdom is here, but it's not what we expected. His disciples thought he was going to overthrow and displace Rome and establish the glory of Israel. But instead, he went viral. He established his kingdom in and through human hearts. And so we might say that the entire gospel of Mark, this whole spring semester, has been a long walk to an empty tomb. A long walk to an empty tomb. So if you've got your Bibles, Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, remember the Sabbath begins on what we would call Friday at sunset and it goes till Saturday at sunset. So when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. You got these three women. They've got no other significance. They're nobody. They're not married to anybody prominent. Mary Magdalene, not married. Mary, mother of James and Mary, well, they all happen to be named Mary. What in the world? Well, that's a very common name. And by the way, James, we translate that in Greek and then into English. It's more likely Jacob was his name. Mary Magdalene. You have Mary, mother of James, the less, or the younger, or the, uh, or the, the smaller. We don't know for sure. And Salome, who was the mother of James and John, the disciples. Salome, probably the sister to Mary, mother of Jesus. And here they come. They had been present at Jesus' crucifixion, watching from a distance, helpless, hopeless, hapless, unable to involve themselves, unable to intervene. They just watched him scorned, shamed, mocked, beaten, dead on a cross. And we're told at the end of Mark 15 that they watched Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus pull his body down off the cross and lay him in a tomb. And they observed where they had put Jesus. So their plan is, Still not understanding, having no category or capacity to understand or comprehend that this man who they saw die might be alive. They're coming because they have, they have nothing else to do. He's dead. Their hope, their, their rabbi, their lord, their master, their friend, he's dead. So they don't know what else to do. It's the only thing they can do. Have you ever been there? You probably have. And there are times when Jesus will allow you to be in a place where you just have nothing else to do and you don't know what to do. So in the very early morning hours of the day, they come, verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week. Now you need to know something. This is not merely a marker to Sunday. You and I get that because we live in the 21st century, probably not our first time in church. Nobody, Nobody in that culture, in that context, was saying the first day of the week was Sunday. Nobody. Everything hinged off the Sabbath. Always. You would say three days before the Sabbath or three days after the Sabbath or two days before the Sabbath. But the first day, that wasn't a thing. What all the gospel writers are going to say is the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. The first day of the week. Why? They're not just saying that it was Sunday. They're saying a brand new creation was inaugurated. A brand new creation was initiated, instigated. It's not just that Jesus was raised on that. That's true and that's awesome and it would have been enough, but they're saying something so much more massive and marvelous. It's a brand new redemptive recreation. In the beginning, God said, Let there be. And before the E was even enunciated, there was stuff. There was something instead of nothing. In the same way, this is a redemptive recreation, a new thing. This is why Mary Magdalene is there. In all four Gospels, other than Jesus, she is the central figure in these resurrection accounts. Why is that? We don't know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene. We know that she was from an area called Magda, which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing port. It was also a, a Roman garrison, so there's fishermen, sailors, and soldiers it was a rough place. Somehow this unmarried woman has resources and finances. We don't know why. She has enough finances to somehow buy spices for, for, um, for wrapping Jesus' body. That would not have been cheap, which has led the church through history to say perhaps she was an innkeeper, maybe even a prostitute. We don't know that. But what we do know is that her life was horribly difficult She had been possessed at one point by not one, not two, not three, but by seven unclean demonic spirits. Her life was a dumpster fire on a train wreck. And into that chaos and darkness and disruption and void, Jesus steps in. Do you see? Mary Magdalene is the personification, she is the human localization of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God and the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos, the void, and the deep. We don't know what that's about. There was something, but it was chaotic. It was unruly and disordered, perhaps a a, a manifestation of the angelic conflict. We don't know, but it was chaos and void. And yet God spoke into it and said, let there be light and let there be order. And Mary Magdalene is the chaos and the void in a personal hot spot of disorder and chaos and into her life Jesus comes and she has no other hope. She and these two other insignificant women show up on the first day because it's a brand new creation. See, in the book of Revelation, we're transported into the very throne room of God, into the celestial heavenlies and we are given access to here in chapter 4, a creation hymn giving praise to God for his power in simply uttering and things existing. But then we get into chapter 5 of Revelation and we're treated to a redemption hymn. The two great omega moments, creation and then redemptive re-creation. This is the enormity and the magnitude of the resurrection of Jesus. Well, these three women show back up, not the disciples. They're scattered and they're splattered. These women come. When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, the idea is they're, they're murmuring, they're repeating to one another, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? There's a, there's a stone in front of the tomb and we've got nowhere else to go, we've got nowhere else to be, we've got nothing, uh, we have no other ideas. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We have a problem. They approached a place with a problem, but what they encountered was a person. And perhaps for some of you, you came to a place this morning, but what I hope you will encounter is a person. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Oh, it was very large. In other words, too large for three women to move it back. These women didn't even know that Pilate had put a seal across the stone and stamped it with Caesar's ring, saying this is a capital offense to move the stone away. Apparently, the angel from heaven wasn't so concerned. Because Matthew's gospel tells us there was a localized earthquake, not because of some fault line that happens to go through the tectonic plates that run between Asia and Africa and Europe. No, no. Matthew says, no, no. There was a localized earthquake because an angel from heaven descended, rolled the stone, and then sat on it. Like, yeah, check me out. How are you doing? And the two Roman soldiers that had been placed there that apparently these three women did not know were supposed to be on duty, fell over as though dead in a coma and perhaps rolled into the bush. We don't know. But when these three women get there, they don't see these two soldiers who have apparently just conked out. But they see that this very large stone has been rolled away. And entering the tomb. So we got to understand, these tombs are probably not what you and I are thinking about. A tomb was sort of a two-chamber situation. You had a larger entry room that had a stone slab on the floor called the room of preparation, where they would lay the body, wrap it in linen cloths, and apply spices to sort of help with the odor. And then deeper in, further back, was a small little hewn chamber called the coke, C-O-Q, where they would just simply slide the body back in there. They walk into the larger chamber, the chamber of preparation, and they're not alone, and that'll get your attention. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man. Well, clearly, he's more than just a junior high kid. We're going to find out this is an angelic being from the way he's described. They see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. You think? They've entered a tomb, which would now make them ceremonially unclean. They don't seem to mind. But then there's somebody who is beaming with white. Matthew and Luke and John all tell us there are two angels. Mark's not saying there wasn't. He's just calling attention to the one who was speaking. Now, John and Matthew and Luke tell us that the two angels, one was situated on this side of the coke, one was situated on this side of the coke, almost to say, ladies, do you see what this is? Are you getting this? They were Jews. They would have understood. In the Holy of Holies, in the temple of God, was the Ark of the Covenant, and the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. On the mercy seat were two angels, two cherubim that were facing one another. And the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice, dip it in that innocent in place of the guilty, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And God would receive it and temporarily atone for the sin of the people. And these two angels now come where the body of Jesus had been laid and said, do you see? This is the mercy seat. The blood of the sacrifice has been sprinkled. The innocent for the many guilty. God's done it. Jesus has done it and they're trying to take it in, and they can't quite have a category for all of this. They were greatly alarmed, verse six. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Yeah, easy for you to say, lightning face. We're freaking out here. Not every day you just walk into a tomb, and then there's this, you know, lightning face going, hey, don't be afraid. Ha ha, okay, sure. And then listen to this specificity. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, just like Mary, Mariam was the most common name in Israel for a female. Mariam, the sister of Moses. Yaakov would have been the, Jacob as, who becomes Israel. Very common names. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, Hosea, Isaiah. It's all the same name. Very common name. And so the angel says, I know who you're looking for. And I know who you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was Crucified you have to imagine those words coming out of this angel's mouth would have caused an earthquake of their own. The spirit being who was mighty and massive, who had been created by a word, by Jesus. He had seen this Jesus stripped, scourged, shamed, spat on, beaten, nailed to a cross. And if Jesus had a flinched an eyebrow, this angel would have made a parking lot of the Middle East. Jesus gave no utterance. This Jesus of Nazareth, they crucified him. In other words, he was dead, not comatose. He was not restored or resuscitated. He was resurrected because he was dead. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Come in. Look, ladies. By the way, The angel doesn't say, but I will say to you what you've heard before. The stone is not rolled away so that Jesus can get out. This is freaky in here. Somebody let me out. No, he is the son of God. He was already gone when the stone is rolled. The stone is rolled away so that we can enter, but even more particularly, so that as we go about our lives in the midst of this redemptive recreation and stones seem to be rolled in front of us, with health issues, with relational issues, with financial issues, with anxiety issues, we can remember if God can roll that stone away, there is no stone he cannot roll away even if I have placed it in my own crypt. God is strong and he's good and he loves us to roll these stones away. Then he gives them really great missiology, great evangelism here, great, great church practicum. See the place where they laid him, go, Tell his disciples, come and see, go and tell. This is what we do in church. Come and see, he's alive. Not go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. Now watch what he does. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. Now why does he do that? Had Peter lost his disciple card? No, no. Peter had been the one with such hubris, arrogance, pride. That had told Jesus in Mark 14, though all of them fall away, I will never betray you. And did it three times. So Peter's fall was the hardest. So this angel refers to Peter specifically. And also Mark's gospel we're fairly certain, was largely influenced by Peter telling Mark his stories. Not only that, when Peter writes his first epistle, he tells us in chapter 1 that angels long to look into the gospel, to the grace of God. Peter writes that. If anybody needed grace and mercy, it was Peter. And so this angel, at the behest of God, says, go tell the disciples, make sure you catch Peter. Make sure you catch Peter because there's doubts. Peter's thinking he's gone too far. You ever been there? I sure have. I'm so grateful for this verse. Go and tell the disciples and go and tell the one who thinks he's failed too far, too deeply, too massively, that he is risen. He is risen. Go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you he told them all through chapter 14. You guys, they're going to deliver me up. I'm going to die. But I will meet you in Galilee. Go to Galilee. <laughs> I'm so glad this is here. It takes them a week and a half to go to Galilee. Like they still can't swallow it. They just like, yeah, I don't know. Sure is shiny and bright and sure is alive-ish. But I don't know. Jesus has already told them, I'll meet you in Galilee. Go. They delay. Sort of an encouragement to me. Verse 8. And when they went out and fled from the tomb, as my dad would say, they are picking them up and putting them down. They're wasting no time. They're running out of that place. I'm kind of encouraged by this because they're afraid. Listen to all the adjectives of fear and anxiety and terror here. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. (laughs) Angel just said, go and tell Peter and the disciples. Mm -mm, They ain't saying nothing. They're freaked out. They still have no category for the possibility that Jesus might be alive. Go tell Peter and the disciples. No, they're terrified. What if we get in trouble for this? What if we find out they've done a worse desecration to the body of our teacher? (sighs) And they're utterly despondent. They told no one for they were afraid. And the gospel of Mark ends with a very strange, unexpected big surprise of a word, afraid. What's going on there? Now, your Bible probably has a longer ending mentioned somewhere here in the Gospel of Mark. Verses 9 to 20 have been debated for some 2,000 years. I know it's Easter, so I'm not going to nerd out on this, but I want you to know your Bible might have it in brackets, or it might have a marginal note that says, most manuscripts don't include this. What's going on? The church has wrestled with this for thousands of years, It's very, very strange that you would end a gospel, the earliest of the gospels that was written, with the word afraid. Is that how you want to end a gospel? Well, more on that later. But the church didn't quite know how to deal with Mark's early gospel, and so it is believed that a guy named Aristion, who was probably a disciple of the apostle John, trying to help the church adds in some colorful explanation. He synthesizes Aristion was a disciple of John and so he borrows from the gospel of John and he sort of appends there and he talks about Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene and to some of the disciples and then he borrows from Matthew's gospel and he gives the Great Commission. Everything in that longer ending is correct. In other words, it's probably canonical. It should be in there. It fits. It's just that almost certainly Mark didn't write it. And that's okay. Nothing in there. There's some weird stuff about snakes and poisons that has specifically to do with the apostolic age. It's not telling you to go and do that. Please don't. It's probably canonical. It's just that Mark almost certainly didn't write it. Mark had a purpose for ending with the word afraid. We'll come back to that in a moment. Very quickly, since I believe, and many other scholars do as well, that Aristion, this guy who compends this, borrowed from John's gospel, let's quickly flip over to the gospel of John chapter 20. I just want you to see this. John chapter 20, what I think Aristion's borrowing from, and then we will try to see if we can apply this. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. John chapter 20, because this longer ending of Mark includes an aspect where Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Again, how centrally she figures in all of this. John chapter 20. I'm in verse 11, sorry. John chapter 11, verse 11. That would have been weird. John chapter 11, 20 verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Now we get what's happening. So she's seen the angel. She's had this conversation, she understands, and she doesn't know what else to do. So she's just catharting. This one who spoke order into her chaos, who spoke light into her darkness. She stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Again, a perfect picture of the mercy seat. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She still doesn't understand that there's any chance that he could be alive. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, no, that's not how he says it. We tend to hear that because it's an English translation. It's not what Jesus is doing. It was very tender. Remember, this is a redemptive re-creation. This is Adam in the garden seeing Eve and saying, Woman, because you come from me. Woman, this garden scene. Why are you weeping? Verse 15. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Oh, isn't that rich? Turns out she was right. Just as Adam had been placed in the garden to be the vice regent of the world and to make the world more and more Edenic. But he reversed God's promise of productivity and production with his rebellion. Jesus reverses the reversal and he has started the identification of the world in his resurrected body. It has begun. Oh, he is the gardener. Turns out she was right. She said to him, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, and this verse just slays me, Mary. He calls her by name. And every molecule in her being is in an instant redemptively recreated. (laughs) He renames her. Because that's what Jesus does when you are converted. He names you because you are his. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. He says to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, she recognized him when he said her name. Do you see? She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Gee, thanks, John, for the grammar lesson. Why is he telling us that Rabboni means teacher? Why is he bothering Because John really wants you to believe that Jesus is alive. Not in some abstract way that you can go, huh, that's an interesting little tidbit of trivia. No, John wants you to understand that this has been God's plan of redemptive recreation since Genesis 3. And in fact, from before the foundations of the earth. Some 700 plus years earlier, the prophet Isaiah writes to Israel, When you are weeping bitter tears, he says in Isaiah 30, when you are grief-stricken, when you have fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and you are crestfallen, and you are desperate and despondent, your teacher will hear you, and he will heal you, and he will bring you gladness. John's going, don't you get it? She doesn't just call him teacher because he was. She's calling him teacher because this is a part of God's plan fulfilled. This, John says, is that. He is the hope of Israel, and he's the hope of everybody else. He has come to begin the breaking forth of new life, of this redemptive re-creation. Jesus is now saying, let there be life. Now watch what happens. It gets even better. He says to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. I mean, come on, what do you do? Your whole world is chaos, and disorder, and darkness, and disruption, and this man steps in, and he loves you, sees you, knows you, cares for you, restores you, orders you, brightens you, and you see him die, <laughs> and now you see him alive. I, I, I don't know about you. I would have gone full snot fest and dove for his ankles, which is apparently what she does, and he goes, no, 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 not yet, not yet. Watch this. Do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers. For the first time, he calls them my brothers. See, this is a redemptive recreation. Jesus is instigating, instituting a brand new family. Watch what else he does. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and for the first time in the Bible, and to your Father. He's never said that. He's only ever called God my Father. Now, because Jesus is alive, he says, I'm going to your father, to my God and your God. Because I am alive, you now have close, personal, intimate, and direct access to my God. He's your God. He's my father. He's your father. I've done it. I have stuck a spike of light and redemptive recreation, and it is eternally steadfast, and it is breaking forth. Don't you see? Jesus is alive. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So what do we take away from this on this Easter Sunday, this resurrection Sunday morning? Let me give you some implications of why this is so important as we talk about the resurrection and the fact that Jesus is alive. Number one, you may be here on any of our floors, third floor, second floor, first floor, watching remotely online, and maybe you still struggle with the possibility. Well, I, I don't know. The resurrection, may, let me just say point number one, the resurrection is possible. I know some of you are kind of debating, well, I don't know, I don't know. I, I follow the science. Really, how's that been working out for you? Apparently, the science is subject to change, as we've all discovered. No, the resurrection is possible. There may still be some people that say it's not possible, but I say to them, how do you know? On what grounds can you possibly say that? I'm not saying it's normative, but it is possible. If there is such a thing as God, then we must allow for this God to be powerful enough to create. And if he's powerful enough to create, then he's powerful enough to resurrect a human life. This is just simple logic. If there is a God, then the resurrection must be possible. And on the other hand, If there is no God, maybe some of you are in that camp, if there is no God, then everything that exists simply happened. And that means that the resurrection can also just happen. So let me just set aside any of your objections and say logically, the resurrection is possible. And you may be thinking, yes, but I didn't see it. doesn't matter. Many, many, many people did, and they still didn't believe signs, wonders, and miraculous visions do not make a person believe. But do you believe? It is possible. Do you believe that it actually occurred? Which brings me to my second point. The resurrection is possible. The resurrection is historical fact. It's fact. Just like there are no actual witnesses to the creation, nobody pulled up a lawn chair and watched God say, let there be lightning!" Wow, what a show, incredible. No, no, There were no witnesses. Interestingly, there are no witnesses to the actual resurrection. We don't know what happens in there. This bright radiating light, perhaps. Was there sound? I, perhaps. No witnesses to it so that every single person is on equal ground. All of us learn of it through the testimony of others who saw him alive. Everybody believes that believes because of the testimony of someone that saw him alive. There was no one to see what actually happened. We just know that it did. Nobody understands exactly how it was created over billions of years or in six literal days. Whatever, you have to agree that there is something and not nothing. In the same way, Jesus is alive. Everyone's on equal footing on that. The proof is in the text. He was attested to have been seen by many Many witnesses in that context and in that setting that constitutes historical fact. In all the great empires of antiquity, from the Hittites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, and the Egyptians. If you have seven witnesses or more, seven, it is considered airtight, ironclad fact. Case closed. More than 500 people saw Jesus walking around alive for a period of more than 40 days, more than 500. It is historical fact, but here's what else. If you take your Bible and you look at all the different people to whom Jesus appeared walking around in his resurrection life, they're all different categories. There are nine different resurrection appearances of Jesus and each one of them is in a little bit of a different context. The first is to Mary Magdalene, in John chapter 20, to this sorrowful and distraught woman, this Weak and societally fringed person, Jesus is alive. Secondly, John 20 to the ten disciples, ten men hiding in an upper room, to these fearful people, Jesus is alive. To Thomas, this one guy who says, Unless I put my fingers in the holes and his hand and his side, I won't, I won't believe. Jesus appears to a doubting. Person. All these resurrection appearances matter. Fourth, Peter. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Peter gets a command performance. All by himself, Jesus comes to Peter to restore him individually because of the enormity of Peter's arrogance. Number five, James, the half brother of Jesus, who rejected and denied that his big half brother was the Messiah. So Jesus comes to a guilty man and proclaims that he is alive. Number six, Luke tells us, and the longer ending of Mark tells us, there were two disciples, perhaps one of them was Luke, we don't know, walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus comes to them, to these confused people who can't seem to make sense of all that's occurred. Jesus is alive to these confused people. Perhaps you found yourself in some of these categories so far, but wait, there's more. Number seven, After all this, Peter and the disciples finally go back up to Galilee. They don't know what else to do, and so they just go fishing. And they're having zero luck. They're powerless men. And Jesus appears to them to say that he is alive. Number eight, I love this, in 1 Corinthians 15, at one given moment, Jesus appears to 500 people. You know why that matters? Because they're insignificant. They're nobody, just like us. Jesus even appears to hundreds of insignificant, historically nameless people. Jesus is alive for everybody. The ninth appearance to the disciples, Matthew 28 and Acts chapter one. These 11 broken fellowship disciples who see the risen Lord Jesus and it says that they worshiped and they doubted. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he was dead and all. There's no doubt of that. And he's alive. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't know. I'm so glad that's there because I have days like that. I call them Monday. (laughs) Jesus is alive. The resurrection is possible. The resurrection is historical fact. Number three, the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. Since it is possible and since it is historical fact, what if each and of us, you and I, stopped trying to actually behave according to the old system where we try to accomplish and achieve and obtain and earn. No, we are these people who have been redemptively recreated because of the finished work of Christ on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead. The entire book of Acts 28 chapters to show us the resurrection effect. This is what happens when the Spirit moves into the churches and King Jesus rides on. 28 chapters to show us what this redemptive recreation looks like. And we have him with us always as we come and see and we go and tell. You see, Jesus is alive. And Easter is a funeral for death. Let me put a very fine point on this. Scripturally, I've mentioned 1 Corinthians 15. Let me now read from how the Apostle Paul thinks about death. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 26. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits or the foreshadowing or the first flicker of those who have fallen asleep or died. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then net is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, Easter is where all the sad things come untrue. When it comes, the sad thing, you are invited, you are encouraged, you are exhorted to say, Jesus is alive. There has begun this breaking forth of new life where we can actually be those people who live without fear of death. We live with the end in mind, knowing that Jesus is alive. I don't know what you think about when you think about Jesus. But this Jesus is alive. And I mean that as a human. Yes, he is divine. Yes, he is deity. Yes, he is God. But he's also a human being. And the resurrection body of Jesus is the first aspect of material, physical creation that is 100% set to rights now. Already, you should see what I see. Your bodies have yet to be redeemed. That was a joke. Relax, people. (laughs) I know what you see. This body has certainly not been redeemed, but the body of Jesus has been completely set to rights. It is redemptively recreated, and he is emanating life, life, life. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that. But take this as gospel truth. He is alive. That first fruit of his set to rights, material, physical body is emanating forth and Jesus will get it done. Do you believe that? Or are you, as Mark ends his gospel in verse eight, afraid, maybe not terrified, maybe not trembling, but you're just not quite sure why this matters. And so you're just going to go back to your normalcy, back to your day, trying to slug it out until maybe one day you die and hopefully, fingers crossed, you go to heaven. It's living a life of fear. And so Mark, most Bible scholars agree, and I am numbered among them, that Mark ends his gospel very intentionally with the word afraid. He doesn't end it because it's not over. He leaves it to the, to the point of the viewer, the reader, What do you do with this? Who do you say that he is? What do you do with Jesus? Are you afraid? And so you just go, I don't know, that's a lot to risk. I'm not so sure that he pulled it off. I think he might still be in the ground somewhere. And you just go back. That means you're still afraid. But what Mark invites us to do, and I think the Holy Spirit invites us to do, what the church has been inviting people to do is to believe and to live lives of fearlessness. Because Jesus is alive. We've said it all semester. The more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. So look at him. He's not an idea, nor a myth, nor a legend. He is Jesus, the Son of God, the death-proof King. He literally cannot experience death again. And so though you and I might fall asleep, death has been dealt with. Jesus is alive. Let's pray together. Father we thank you for the resurrection that it is not merely a story it is about what you are doing in the here and now to redemptively recreate us in our current context in our families and our marriages and our parenting and being sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and community members and church members and co-workers you are redemptively recreating And so would you fasten our hearts and our minds to that reality that we would live accordingly. Not, God, that we would merely have some vague understanding or some slight agreement, but that we would trust and put all of our being, all of our weight, all of our existence on the fact that Jesus is alive. And so, Father, if there's anyone hearing these words on any of our three floors or watching online that does not know you, that like Mary Magdalene, is still constituted by chaos and disorder, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, would you speak life and light into them that they would be ordered and redemptively recreated? God, right now, by your son Jesus' power, would you speak their name? For the rest of us, Father, who perhaps, like the disciples, are tending to hide in an upper room or to walk the road confused or to be discouraged and distraught, would you remind us that our Jesus is alive and there is no circumstance beyond which you are sovereign. So would we have joy despite the circumstance? Because of the resurrection, we pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.